The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. Hello and welcome to the Holding Short Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Matheson. Today we are joined by Melissa. From the moment Melissa spotted a sea turtle on her first plane ride as a child, with her grandfather at the controls, she has loved flying. It was not until decades later that Melissa realized she could have a career as a pilot and transitioned from her desk job in banking that had left her feeling unfulfilled. Melissa began flight training in 2014 and since then has juggled working full-time, earning a Bachelor's of Science in Aviation Administration from Utah Valley University, flight training, and life on her family cattle farm. For the last five years, Melissa has also worked full-time in aviation for Aeronav Data, also known as Garmin, as an aeronautical analyst and trainer. Melissa holds a Rotorcraft CFI and commercial helicopter license with instrument rating, and is currently working towards her CFII. Since discovering her love of helicopter flying, she has been involved within the 99s, Women in Aviation, and the Whirly Girls Aviation Organizations. I truly could not be more excited to have her joining me today. Welcome, Melissa. Hi, how are you? I am great. How are you tonight? I'm doing well. I say you have been on our list of guests for a really long time. I really have enjoyed connecting with you through the PBLI. So when you said yes, it was a lot of fun getting to prepare for this episode. Oh, I'm happy to hear that. We will jump right on in then. How did you get your start in aviation? Uh, I've always been around aviation since I was a kid. My grandfather had a share of a plane and he took me from my first plane ride when I was a kid uh, in Florida. We flew out over the, the ocean, got to see a shipwreck and a turtle. And so I've always been kind of fascinated with planes since then. Uh, he got his pilot's license later in life too. So that was always kind of neat to me. Um, when I was in college, I took ground school for fixed wing and was fascinated by it. Got to fly my instructor's plane once. Uh, it was one of those moments that it, when you're done, you feel like your feet aren't really touching the ground. You kind of feel like you're just floating along. It was so fun. At that time, I did not have the money to complete a pilot's license. So I went on and worked various other jobs, ended up with a career in banking and um, was had done that for a while and wasn't super satisfied with it. I knew it was not going to be a lifelong career. It just, you know, didn't fulfill me the way that I felt like a career should. Uh, so I started thinking about other things to do uh, in the meantime, in between college and my career in banking, I had worked on a cruise ship for a bit and spent a summer in Alaska. It fell in love with Alaska. It's a gorgeous state, just beautiful scenery and the wildlife, that kind of thing. One of the things I got to do when I was in Alaska was do a helicopter glacier tour out of Skagway with Timsco helicopters. Uh, over 20 years later, I still have that flyer from Timsco. And so that experience really stuck with me. Uh, it was so fun to get to fly and move in a way that only a helicopter can and see uh, parts of the world that you wouldn't be able to otherwise. We went and landed on a glacier and got to walk around and uh, take pictures and 
spend some time in the mountains with the, on the glacier. And then, you know, I kind of filed that experience away and always loved Alaska and always wanted to go back. And one day it was one of those kind of light bulb moments. I was driving through the middle of Illinois and, you know, the winter time after Christmas break and visiting family. And we, I had talked to my family about finding a job in Alaska and somehow going back because I had loved it so much. And on that drive back, it was, like I said, it was a light bulb moment. And I thought I can be a helicopter pilot and go back to Alaska as a helicopter pilot. <laughs> so it was that kind of experience that uh, started the ball rolling. It took me a while, several months, probably a year, maybe a year and a half of doing some research, trying to figure out how to maintain income full-time and figure out how to pay for flight school, how to make time for flight school. So yeah, that was how my start with helicopters began. Because I always find it so interesting when you speak to people about how they got into aviation. And oftentimes it is, oh, a family friend, a grandparent had a plane. I was fortunate enough to go up with them or get to do some flying with them. But helicopters and rotary, that's a little different. You don't meet many people that just have a helicopter to go and take you up in. So I think it, yeah, must be more of those heli tour experiences that are maybe the first exposure someone has to rotary. Right. Yeah, that was before I started flight training that I had two helicopter flights. One was a tour in Alaska, one was a tour in Hawaii. Um, so, and I can still, you know, decades later, vividly remember parts of those, those flights. Um, I mean, frankly, having the experience of doing helicopter tours in Alaska and Hawaii, I think that would endear you to helicopters forever. Yeah, right. Yeah, even without an aviation background, I mean, getting to do that as an experience, of course, you probably want to keep doing that and helicopters being the, the recurring theme there while rotary suddenly makes sense. When I decided to start flight training, I, I looked at fixed wing as well, because I, I have no, you know, no ill will towards fixed wing. You'll hear some pilots that are, you know, staunchly one or the other and. I like them both. You know, I, I love to fly no matter what it is. I looked at fixed wing as well, but at the time that I started flying helicopters, it looked like I could progress into more exciting jobs more quickly than um, building up hours and ratings on the fixed wing side. So that's part of how I ended up following a, a career path into helicopters. Do you think you would ever go back now and do additional flight training, but in a fixed wing context? Yes, I would like to. I, I would love to be able to rent an aircraft and go fly for fun at a much cheaper rate than uh, with helicopters. <laughs> um, and there, there's some, some of the jobs with on the fixed wing side too seem attractive. Uh, you know, that's kind of down the road once I, I get more established in a helicopter career. Presently, you work at Aeronav Data, also known as Garmin, as an aeronautical analyst and trainer. What does a typical day look like in this role? So our overall goal for my job is we code the databases that go in the flight management system boxes uh, or navigation systems on aircraft, whether it be fixed wing, helicopter, um, so we take data from 
different countries, you know, from approach plates to comms to airport information, nav aids, whatever it is. And we input that data into a database. And every 28 days we package it up and send it out, which is the, the um, database updates that a lot of pilots are familiar with on their garments. Um, so that, that's the overall thing that we do. Um, so a typical day for me might be, um, since I'm on the training team, is I work with new or existing employees to teach them uh, how to you know, accomplish updating that database. Because there's different training requirements that we have. Um, and then of course, you know, new people, getting them familiar with our systems and um, acclimated so that they can do their jobs. So. Do you find when people first start training that it's fairly intuitive or is the learning curve really, really steep? It's a lot like getting flight training. Um, at first, it seems pretty overwhelming uh, because mo uh, most of the people that I work with are pilots. So they have an aviation background. So we have that, that common knowledge to build off of. But the thing that's a little different about our job is we're not telling the pilot what to do. We're telling the plane what to do. Hmm. So the plane might be at XYZ waypoint at you know, a specific altitude and a specific airspeed. So some people, it's harder for them to think about what the plane is doing versus what the pilot is doing, so. Are a lot of the people that work on your team, do they have a piloting background or are they just someone that maybe has more of an engineering, mathematics, more technical background that has found themselves in aviation? Uh, we have a mix of both. Um, we have some people that, you know, are on the, the tech side of it. And then we have a variety of pilots. We have a hot air balloon pilot who also has fixed wing ratings. Um, we have some pilots that also work for airlines, you know, so they work for us part-time. Um, so there's a, a handful of helicopter pilots as well. Uh, the common denominator on a most of them that helps with our type of job is they have their instrument rating because that's primarily what we're working with is the information that you'll find on instrument approach plates, um, airways, that kind of thing. And, uh, and as soon as you said, yeah, the common denominator is an instrument rating. Well, of, of course, that makes perfect sense why that would be sort of, uh, if you're coming with a flying background, the requirement that you need regardless of aircraft you fly. I, yeah, I can see sort of how there could be sort of uh, obviously help coming into a, a role like that where you can visualize that you can fly it. You can think, what does this actually look like? Is this practical? How would this work? So I can, yeah, definitely see the benefit of coming in with a flying background, even if it's just part-time. We do have a handful of people that had an interest in the job or had an interest in aviation that we've trained um, that may not have had an instrument rating, but for the most part, that's where we are so how do waypoints get their names I mean you see some that just look like they're completely random some have cute fun names how do waypoints get their names I'm not 100% sure of that process I know it's it ha for the U.S. It, it happens at some point in the FAA some are intentionally fun um, 
I, I know of a waypoint named after a person. Uh, there are some SIDS and STARS that have themes to them. There's a couple in the US that have Star Wars uh, characters or phrases in them. Uh, there's one, I think it's in Portland, Oregon, that's a Voodoo Donuts uh, <laughs> theme. I don't remember if that's a, an arrival or a departure, but uh, yeah, some, so there's some, some employees in the FAA that, that get the fun of that. I know I've sort of joked with you for years that if you have the power and know the right people that I, I hope that you can make a lore away point because I think it'd be really fun to have a lore away point. <laughs> we should look and see if one exists. We should, uh, you know what, we should, we're talking about this, but we should probably look and see. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would say probably in the US, there's not a repetition of waypoints just for clarity and to avoid confusion too. So if there's one, you know, that's probably the only waypoint that's named like that. If there is one, I'm just going to pretend it's named for me. It can be like my waypoint and then I'll have to make it like a little pilgrimage to make sure that I go there. Yes. I'll, I'll report it to some air traffic controller that won't find it nearly as cool as I will, but that will be very cool to me. <laughs> Uh, in the, the St. Louis area, there is, I believe there's a, I don't remember if it's a sit or a star, but it's themed after the, the blues and some of its hockey players, some of its musical blues. So that one's fun too. Now, jumping back to your flight training, as you mentioned, you spent about a year, maybe even a year and a half, just doing the research of how is this going to work? What is the best route to go about this? What are my options local to me? But overall, how does rotary training work in the U.S.? How different is it from fixed wing training? So with uh, rotary training, the typical path, there's two, you know, there's the civilian or the military side because rotary training is so expensive. So some pilots may choose to go the military route and get a pilot, see if they can get a pilot slot and get their training through the government. Uh, if you go the civilian route in the US, a uh, typical route would be get your private pilot's license, um, your instrument rating, and then you can work on your commercial. A lot of times, sometimes people flip the order of the instrument and the commercial, but any of the hours working on your instrument in between can go towards your commercial for your um, PIC mm -hmm. hours. So that's a fairly typical route. And then after that, get your flight instructor license or flight instructor rating, pardon me, or, and your, um, your in, uh, flight instructor instrument rating. So that's, um, it's just those, that handful of ratings. So the private instrument commercial and then your flight instructor ratings. Uh, I know on the fixed wing side, you might have like multi-engine training as well. Uh, helicopters don't have a multi-engine training uh, per se, because once you get into helicopters that have multiple engines like that, it might be a type rating on it instead of, yeah. So it's more common um, to find type ratings uh, on specific helicopter models versus you know getting um like a multi-engine rating with the on the fixed wing side i can only think of a handful of multi-engine helicopters so it, it makes sense that they would be more one-off type ratings as opposed to a whole rating in itself that you have to do and i can't even think what sort of 
initial multi rotary trainer would be. I, all the ones I can think of are these big helicopters. And they all, for me, sort of seem to be like military, even if it's related to search and rescue, even if it's related to the Coast Guard, but they're still, to, I, I can't think of many twin engine rotary aircraft that would be civilian. Yeah, and if you get into those, they're they're specialized jobs as well. So, and once you get into those types of helicopters, if you had to pay rent the helicopter and pay for that training yourself, it's cost prohibitive. It's that point is once you transition into twin helicopters, the the cost per hour goes up so much, whether it's a single or a twin turbine, that you know, that's that's probably training you're going to get on the job at that point. And as you mentioned, sort of different types of jobs, and that would be a very specific type of work that you'd be doing with a twin engine uh, helicopter. But when it comes to just regular, I'll say more classic single engine helicopters, are there specific hour requirements when it comes to work? I know when you have the fixed wing context, I believe you need, you need 1500 hours for your ATPL before you're really even considered to be eligible for a first officer position a lot of the time. Are there specific hour requirements for sort of similar roles within the rotary world? There are, and there's some variation with those hour requirements based on the types of jobs that you're looking at, but there's, um, you know, a typical first job for helicopter pilots going to be either flight instructing or flying tours. And then once you get to probably between, I would say between 800 and a thousand hours, that's when you can start looking at jobs that might be moving on to the next level, um, getting into a turbine job. So those jobs, anywhere between 1,000, 1,500 hours, uh, kind of the same, same type of timeframes as uh, on the fixed wing side. Then you can, like I said, the turbine jobs that pay more might be more interesting work, like maybe flying in the Gulf of Mexico, maybe some entry-level ferry jobs with uh, like a medevac type um, operator. Um, yeah, and then there's some other industries that you can start looking at then, maybe like firefighting. There, there's some other industries that, that would fit into there too, like maybe flying law enforcement. That's a little different because a lot of times on law enforcement, they come up through the police officer or you know law enforcement officer ranks. Um, you can get into some other jobs once you have a few thousand hours to, like I said, firefighting, maybe flying some corporate helicopters. Um, there's a lot of, once you get into the helicopter world, there's a lot of different little kind of areas that are specialties that you might not know exist. Like I, I've heard of uh, pilots flying like conservation type jobs, like checking on animals, uh, tracking animals, that kind of thing. Um, I've heard of some high-end real estate firms hiring helicopter pilots to fly over oh, wow. properties so you can see them from the air, especially if you're oh, wow. large tracts of land like ranches. Um, what else? Mm. There's some in the agricultural industry as well, uh, like flying crop dusting. Uh, I've heard of crop pollination with helicopters. Like there's some, some um, cherry orchards that use helicopters to dry cherries. I, I don't know all the specifics of that, but they use helicopters for that. Um, and, you know, there's industries like um, oil and gas flying in the Gulf of Mexico in the U.S. is fairly typical flying out to the oil platforms. Um, 
I don't know if typical is the right word, but that's a, another industry that you know, pilots can look at flying for uh, maybe a TV station. So there's a lot of different options out there. As you're just sort of explaining all these different jobs, of course, I'm thinking, yeah, of course that exists. There would have to be someone that would do that or, oh, how, how interesting is it? Yeah, of course, a, a, the high-end real estate group could easily have their helicopter to show off being those incredible properties that cost way more than I'll ever be able to afford. But even thinking back to different TV shows that I watched that are maybe related to like conservation and related, uh, stuff with like animal herds that you see, oh, you'll have a helicopter that might not necessarily be corralling, like herding animals from the air, but they can definitely sort of help coordinate things. And yeah, if someone's trying to use like a, a tranquilizer dart on a herd of animals to try and do sort of spot checks of population. Yeah, now I'm thinking about it. Man, there's a lot of really like specialized helicopter jobs that you just don't think of. Right, yeah. Um, you, you mentioned herding. Yes, there are some um, livestock owners. Uh, I don't, don't know that it happens often in the U.S., but I know in some other countries that they use helicopters to herd cattle. Uh, when you have you know large tracts of land where they might graze and you need to to bring them in for whatever reason they can round them up sometimes with helicopters yeah I, I always think about the regulations we have in Canada related to how low you can fly over a herd of animals that might be stampeding animals and then you see these helicopters come in and just kind of coordinate and corral and I just I, I don't always understand how that works but it's clearly very specialized work being able to sort of corral and move without stampeding right yeah I would think so recently you achieved your rotary CFI and I remember in speaking to you about that process, it was so involved. So I'm hoping we can talk more about what was that check ride actually like? I, I had scheduled that check ride out probably, I think it was about eight weeks out because I wanted that goal to make myself finish up studying, make it, uh, finish up my lesson plans. And, and I, I work better with a deadline like that than to just say, you know what, I'm gonna finish these on time in the next few months and then I'll schedule my check ride. Um, often the examiners don't have a whole lot of availability. So if you can get on their calendar and kind of work backwards like I did, it, it works well. And, uh, you know, I spent weeks cleaning up my lesson plans, you know, perfecting them, they're not perfecting those, it's not the word I wanna use, but um, completing them, checking them, making sure they were accurate, you know, practicing teaching other people. And then uh, the flight school that I completed my flight instructor rating with is about five hours away from my home. So I took a few days off of work and went over, my check ride was on a Saturday. I think I went over on the Wednesday before and flew some with my flight instructor and practiced, um, you know, answering questions, you know, going through the different possibilities of what might be on the oral portion of the check ride, practicing the maneuvers that would be on the, the flying portion of it. Um, it was in December and that week, um, you know, the Friday rolled around and the weather was pretty crappy. We didn't get to fly at all because of the, the you know, it's just, low ceilings, bad visibility type of thing. And Friday afternoon, I really thought I kept looking at the weather and I hit a point where I just kind of quit studying because I didn't think my check ride was going to be the next day. So I thought, you know, I kind of relaxed a little bit. I'm like, okay, we're going to end up rescheduling this because of the weather. Uh, my flight instructor that I did the, the training with 
um, he has decades of experience of flying, you know, decades of experience of teaching. So I trust him. Uh, obviously, he's my flight instructor. Um, we got a got to the Friday evening, and you know, he and I were talking. He's like, "Let's go ahead and put everything together." and prepare as if we are going tomorrow, even though the weather looks like we might not get to. So we put everything together, the app, you know, the application. And um, I got up the next morning and the weather was marginal VFR. The ceilings were pretty low. Um, <laughs> he, he said, well, meet me at the airport. You know, we're gonna try this. So like I said, the weather was kinda, kind of, you know, low ceilings, that was the, the biggest part of it that made a marginal VFR. Um, he knows that area very well. Uh, so I trusted him and he said, let's try it. it we're a helicopter, you know, it's not, it, it, we didn't have to go. We knew we always had the option of not going. And we also have the option of, like I said, we're a helicopter. If the, the visibility cl closes in on us too much or the ceiling closes in, too much you just find a safe place to land make that decision to land um so we chose to go ahead and try it and when i say try it um the exam we flew to the examiner's house which was about an hour and a half almost two hour flight away from the airport where the helicopters and the flight school is based so that was that played into being able to do the check ride that day was whether i could get to the examiner so, uh, and my flight instructor flew with me. Uh, so we, we made it, uh, the weather, like I said, the weather was kind of, you know, low ceilings, but we tried it and it cleared up by the time that we got to the examiner's house and I got through the oral portion of the check ride and, you know, the ceilings were high enough that we could do all the maneuvers that we needed to on the check ride for the flying portion of it. Um, the, it, like I said, you know, weeks of preparation went into that. Um, when you get to a flight instructor check ride, you know, you, some of the, obviously the requirements are different and the things that you can use on your check ride are a little different than your private license. Uh, I have had my iPad, had Garmin Pilot on it so that I had all my current charts and some apps that I could use during the check ride for calculations, things like that. I had taken it out of my purse on my car on the way to the check ride or to the airport to get to the helicopter. I didn't realize I did not have my iPad with me until I walked into the, the check ride with the examiner. And one of the first things he asked me to do was something I would have used my apps to calculate. And I sat there and I, I, I looked at him and I was thinking, how do I answer this question? And is my check ride over before it even gets started? But, you know, all those months and weeks and hours of preparation goes into it that, you know, anything that I had on my iPad, I could do by hand. Um, so I ended up doing my flight plan, weight balance calculations, that kind of stuff by hand. Um, so, you know, there was a few moments of panic where I just sat there and stared at him going, how do I do this? Because what I had 
anticipated being able to use, I no longer had, but I had all the tools necessary still because I had taken my textbooks with me and my lesson plans and that kind of thing. Um, so it, it made for a very stressful oral portion of the check ride, but you know, that's what we train for as pilots. You know, you never know when you're going to be flying and like an instrument might not work the way you're expecting, you know, your avionics might, um, something might happen to them where they're not working right. You, you might lose an alternator where you lose various, you know, electronics in the aircraft. So we prepare for that. We know we don't have to have those electronics. We don't have to have whatever it is that we have backups. We have ways that we can, um, do those calculations, whatever it is. So yeah, it definitely made for an interesting check ride. Added the stress level that I didn't need added to, but you know, I it, it made it that much sweeter to to hear I passed my check ride when we landed. So, uh, like I said, that it was it was in December when I took the check ride. So on the way back to the the home airport, the hour and a half, almost two hour flight back um was in the dark and you know the sun it was it was kind of apropos because we landed finished the, the flying portion of the check ride as we landed the sun was setting so um you know it's always some of my favorite flights are sunset flights and on the way back got the the fun of getting to see some christmas lights from the air so that was you know a nice little treat on the way home to be able to enjoy, you know, being a, finally having my flight instructor rating and, you know, getting to see some stuff from a different perspective that not everybody gets to see. It definitely, I mean, the time of year would have added a little bit of holiday magic to it too. It's like, it's, you're approaching the holiday season. You've, after years of working towards this goal and of all the work you've put in, it's come together and you have your CFI and then it just gets to be sort of right in time for the holidays. It, is, it was just a sort of an overall magical experience to what is an, a really interesting journey. Yeah, it, it was for sure. When it came to the ground portion, though, I know we had talked about this previously, but how long was this ground portion? Um, I would have to look. I, I could figure it out from probably text messages and different things on my phone, but um, it was probably between two and three hours, I think. So, um, yeah, like I said, I'd have to look at it and see if I could figure out from timing on text messages because, you know, I was um, communicating that I had landed, you know, that that portion of the test was over and I was moving on to the next one um, with on a, a couple of quick text messages during a break. So, yeah. Just it blows my mind because ours are generally like it could be maximum an hour and so when you're just like yeah it was like three hours it was like oh my god like what could you possibly be talking about for three hours and then get into the plane afterwards or into the <laughs> helicopter afterwards yeah from the time that I left that morning you know so it was, I got to the airport between 8 30 and 9 by the time I ate dinner that night it was probably 8 30 or maybe even nine o'clock. So it ended up being a 12 hour day. Um, I knew enough from previous check rides. I took bottled water and I had, I, I, I'm a person that tends to get hangry and can't focus really well if I get 
hungry. So I always usually have some kind of snack in my purse. So I snarked that down in the break during the, between the oral portion and the flying portion of the check ride. Thank God, because we didn't go to lunch. We didn't, we stopped for fuel on the way there. Um, I ate breakfast before we got in the helicopter. So, you know, that's another fun thing to deal with when you have long check rides like that. And a lot of, a lot of check rides tend to be hours long, you know, where you might be, your whole test might be five or six hours. You've been a repeat scholarship recipient. Notably, you earned a bachelor of science in aviation administration from Utah Valley University through an Amelia Earhart Memorial Scholarship through the 99s. What was it like to receive the scholarship and further than to earn the bachelor of science? Uh, I'm still humbled and honored that I received that scholarship. Um, uh, yeah, it's, they, they give out the, the Amelia Earhart Memorial Scholarship Fund scholarships every year. And there's a handful of them. Um, they, they do flight training, they do the uh, aviator. They do flight training, they do the academic scholarships, which is what I received. Um, it, overall in the world of pilots if you think about it it's only female pilots that have received that scholarship it's honor in honor of Amelia so it's it's a fairly small group of people that you join when you receive one of those scholarships like I said I'm still honored and humbled that I'm one uh, it gave me the ability to finish my degree when I started my degree I was using it to get um, student loan funds to be able to help pay for flight training. There's, like I've said before, that it's helicopter training is a lot more expensive than fixed wing training. Uh, so unless you have thousands upon thousands of dollars saved up when you start flight training, you know, um, it's hard to fund that as a private pay individual unless you have prepared for it ahead of time, which I had some money that I had saved up, but I used the student loans to help me pay for some of the flight training. So I started my degree and I had maxed out the amount that I could borrow uh, as far as the student loans. I, I, until I got that scholarship, I didn't know if I was going to be able to finish my degree. So that was, you know, great, a great feeling to be able to finish it and to be able to finish it with the help of the 99s, you know, um, I'm still thankful for that. And it's helped me with my job. It's helped me become a better pilot uh, to have that aviation degree because some of the safety courses and human factors courses and courses in like airport operations, things that I would not have learned that in depth, just getting my flight training and getting my readings. So um, it's been a great help. So there's several people I know that have been Amelia Earhart Memorial Scholarship recipients over the years, and they've won different scholarships. And it always amazes me though, at just how life-changing a scholarship can be, whether it is that final step in a huge process, or it helps move you towards uh yeah sort of a academic pursuit or even flying pursuits i mean scholarships really do change lives and i think that that's one of the things that the 99s does particularly well it's a fun process to apply for them i joke that that's half the battle of getting the scholarship is just the application process 
but they really do change lives and they, they go to so many really rewarding people. It's uh, definitely, uh, I can see yeah, exactly why you'd be humbled and honored to be a recipient even years later. Yeah, when I first learned about the 99s and was exploring scholarship options uh, at the, it, the I, I did that at the advice of one of my mentors when I first started looking at flying helicopters. She had guided me towards the 99s, Worldly Girls, uh, Women in Aviation, and there's some other organizations that do the scholarships. I, like I said, learned about the Amelia Earhart scholarships, but one of the things that I thought was really neat that they did. And it's, it's kind of funny how sometimes one little thing sets the goal for you. And I, I learned before I ever even had my private license. If you get into the Earhart scholarship, once you complete it, it's only upon completion of the training or the degree or whatever it is, you get a coin that's a pendant um, that's got Amelia, it's a Amelia Earhart on one side and then your name and the scholarship and the year you got it is on the, the back of it. So when I first learned about those, I thought, oh, that's neat. I want one of those. And then I got one, you know, I, I, I received the scholarship and finished my degree and it was, um, it was quite an honor to get my, uh, my Amelia Earhart medallion. And I'll often, like, I took it with me on my CFI check, right? I had it in my pocket. So, you know, it's kind of like a way to bring, uh, you know, all, the, all that history and all those other recipients with me and all that support, you know, just kind of, you know, gives you a little, little boost in confidence. I didn't know that the scholarships have that. And at first, I think we must have some twin brain happening because now I'm thinking, oh man, now I want one. Um, <laughs> As well though, when it comes to scholarship applications, as we mentioned the 99s process, it's quite a quite a production, but they, again, I don't think it's undeservedly. So I think there's, it's intentionally set up that way. And I, I can stand by that uh, application process. But overall, when it comes to applying for scholarships, what suggestions would you have for someone putting together a scholarship application? Um, follow the instructions before you and give yourself plenty of time to complete the application. Give yourself plenty of time to ask for letters of recommendation because almost every scholarship application out there requires um, at least one or two, if not three letters of recommendation, possibly. Uh, a lot of them have some short answer questions or essay questions that they want um, to learn more about you as an applicant. They're not trying to make, make it hard to do the applications. They're trying to get a picture of who you are and how committed you are to your training or whatever it is you're asking for with that scholarship or whatever the you know, whatever you'll receive with that scholarship. Um, and you know, as pilots, following instructions is kind of, you know, second nature for us because there's regulations we follow there's procedures we follow there you know there's and they're all there for a reason whether it's to keep us safe to what it, that's the biggest um driver behind a lot of those uh, um so being able to follow instructions on a scholarship application demonstrates you know that ability as a pilot that you can translate it to filling out a form, whatever it is. Uh, 
they want to kind of get to know you, uh, to see who you are. Like I said before, how committed you are to your training, that type of thing. Um, accuracy is another big one. Uh, fill out your scholarship application, let it sit for a day or two, and then go back to it and look at it and review it for mistakes. Ask someone you trust to look at it. Uh, if you're not good at writing uh, at, or you're not comfortable with it, ask someone else to review it um, and you know they can give you some pointers. As far as letters of recommendation, I, whenever I fill out scholarship applications, that's one of the first things I do is I, I have in my head a few people that I'm, I want to ask to fill out the, to write that letter of recommendation um, and ask for them early to give those people time to do it and to get it back to you in time. Ask for more letters than you need because somebody may not have time to do it. Um, and then that way you can pick the ones that fill, you know, kind of expand that picture uh, on that you, you're giving on the scholarship application of who you are, you know, because they'll put details in there that you didn't in your essay or your answers on there. Um, so when I ask for the letters of recommendation, I always send them like a link to the website or a description of the scholarship and what who the organization it is, what the um, what the main intent of the organization is, whether it's the 99s or some, another aviation organization or individual that's giving out the scholarship, you know, what their background is so that they can write it and tailor it to that as well. Yeah, I'll tackle on two suggestions as well to what you said. I think uh, when you send all the information off related to a uh, reference letter, I usually send my resume along with them. Just as like, here's my resume, here's what I'll, if, if you want to know more about me or if there's something you want to jump on um, that's from here, please don't be afraid to ask if you're just looking for inspiration because it can be hard to put those letters together. So I think, yeah, giving them loads of time and as much information about the organization and the scholarship itself, I think that's all great. Uh, as well, I, one thing that I learned from you actually is to talk to other scholarship recipients who have received a scholarship that you're going for. You might learn something about the application process that you wouldn't know or wouldn't think to do. And I think that that's a, another, uh, that, yeah, just to sort of been speaking with you and getting to know you more, that was something that helped me ultimately receive a scholarship. And it's by speaking to people that have been recipients or who have gone through that application process that can make all the difference. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I am, my personality type is I tend to procrastinate sometimes and don't with the scholarship applications because you may be getting everything completed by the deadline. Say you wait till the last day to turn it in. That's great that you got it done. But what if the website breaks and now you have a completed scholarship application that you spent all of this time working on, you can't turn it in. Um, that a, a, a situation similar to that happened to me and I the night the scholarship was due I was emailing people saying you know hey this is what's going on right now I've got my scholarship application done but I want to meet the deadline how can we you know is there a way a workaround rather than the, the process that's laid out right now that's broken um, and don't get discouraged if you don't get them uh, there's a scholarship that I received through women in aviation 
the Dare to Dream scholarship. I'm pretty sure I applied to that scholarship once, twice, maybe three times. I'm not 100% sure. But just because you don't get it once doesn't mean that you won't get it the next time you apply. Uh, and a lot of organizations are willing, not all of them, but some of them will give you feedback on your application. If you don't receive it one year, you can ask if they have any suggestions for um, improving your scholarship and applying again, or improving your application, I mean, and applying again. So, you know, it's, there's only so many scholarships they give out and there's probably a lot of applicants. So it may not necessarily be that, you know, you didn't meet the qualifications. It's just, that's not who they picked that year. So. I didn't know that you'd been a Dare to Dream scholarship recipient. I think I've applied to that as well, like two or three times. Keep, keep applying. Keep applying, that's all I'm hearing. One of the things you touched on with the scholarship applications is that they're trying to get a sense of who you are, what, how focused are you on your training? How committed are you to your training? But they also really look at how involved you are within the aviation community. Uh, volunteering and being actively involved in your community is something that you've done throughout your entire life. Uh, and one of the ways that you right now give back to aviation is through the PPLI, which is the Professional Pilot Leadership Initiative through the 99s. How did you first hear about and then get involved with the PPLI? I had seen it on the 99s um, website and I had talked to people in my 99s chapter about it and I was aware of it but at the time that I was looking at the first time I looked at it I didn't have meet all the qualifications to be a um, participant and then I was at Heli Expo at a Whirly Girls um, meeting and met someone that was involved uh, with the PPLI there they they brought it up and talked about it and that was at that time I finally was far enough with my ratings and my training to meet the qualifications and it kept popping up. So I thought, no, maybe this is something I should look at. So I, I, I talked to some people and applied and yeah, now I'm through the program and it really helped. Um, before I started it, I, as you know, I had not finished my flight instructor rating and that helped me set some goals and gain some confidence with um, my lesson plans and that type of thing. And to really focus on finishing it and it, it helped me do that. And you also joined the PPLI at a particularly interesting time in sort of aviation overall. Right. I received the, the phone call for who I was paired with as my mentor um, probably about, it was March of 2020, so probably a couple weeks before everything shut down. Um, so you know, it, it's a testament to the aviation industry and, you know, pilots in general of how adaptable and, um, you know, rolling with the changes at times of, you know, as pilots, we know nothing is guaranteed with weather, nothing is guaranteed with maintenance and equipment. So um, there was a time where, I wasn't sure uh, with the pandemic if, you know, what the state of flight instruction was. Are, is this something we're allowed to do right now with all the shutdowns and quarantines or, or, you know, so we found ways to 
still make progress um, when things were uncertain like that. What was your most rewarding takeaway from your time within the PPLI as a participant? The support, I think, the program, the structure of it, and just how many people are willing to come alongside you and help you set those goals, define them, find ways to meet them, and to consistently be there for you as you're working through this. Uh, One of my, um, my mentoring coordinator during one phase of it was um, a helicopter pilot in the UK. And she took time out to meet with me weekly, if not more, so that I could teach her my lesson plans and you know refine those teaching skills and figure out what I needed to improve, what was working, that kind of thing to get that practice. Um, you know, it's kind of humbling when you think about somebody, you know, like whole continent away is willing to stay up late to help you meet your goals. So that's one thing I always find so incredible about the 99s and especially within the PPLI is how much of a community they have made. Uh, going into the program myself as a Canadian, I thought, okay, well, we'll probably be US centric. Will I be able to still get maybe the full experience out of it being in a different country? And it was almost seamless. It really didn't matter where I was. We were all virtual anyways, but it really didn't matter that I was coming in with a different training background or very early on in my training. Uh, Initially, we were paired together. And I remember thinking, what am I going to have in common with a helicopter instructor in Missouri? What could we possibly have in common? And I think they they do their magic. They manage to put together the right people. And you really do end up with such a strong community of women that are there to support you, even if it's staying up late, late at night on another continent, because they know it will make a difference to you. And then they're paying it forward to you. It, It really is an amazing community. And those relationships last beyond, you know, the, the session timelines. Um, I, you know, you, you and I have maintained a relationship and keep in touch. And uh, I, I've done that with a, a few other ladies as well. And there have been times that I had questions or just wanted some support. And, you know, I, I message them and say, hey, this is where I am. And, you know, sometimes it's, hey, can we talk? You know, it, you know, I've got time at lunch today, let's, let's talk about this or, you know, that support through messages and here's, you know, my perspective on it, here's what I think you should do. So it's, you know, I, I don't, I, I haven't seen that elsewhere. Who is someone in aviation you admire and why? Just overall aviation you know, people are willing to help each other. And, you know, there's a, a helicopter pilot photographer that I know that he, he makes it a goal of his to help other people out, whether it's contributing to scholarships or, you know, like I said, he's a photographer. He, he mentors other photographers photographers. Yeah, they're probably be his competitor at some point, but that's his way of giving back is helping other people get into the industry and learn the skills and, you know, share his knowledge with them. Um, You know, it's, it's the pilots that own aircraft that are going to take them to a girls in aviation day or, you know, take a kid for a ride, whatever it is to, or take someone that's interested in aviation for a ride and 
you know, and get to share it on, you know, in their own equipment on their own dime. So. And so that's one thing about aviation is that it's certainly very easy to have many people to look up to and admire. Um, one of the things about the aviation community overall is that it doesn't take much to pay it forward. It doesn't take much to get involved in your community. And it can be something as simple as bringing your own private aircraft to a girls fly day event that makes all the difference. And it might make a difference to an organization that's putting that on and to the women and girls that show up that day. It's very easy to pay it forward in aviation. And I think the sort of recurring theme for you is people that are willing to make that time and pay it forward and be actively involved in the community. It's something that you do quite well. So I can see why that's something that's so important to you when you think about it, the people that you admire. You know, it's meeting the people that are the celebrities too in the aviation world that you would think they have some notoriety. They, they're well known for their skills or their job or whatever it is, but every one of them that I've met has been so nice and willing to take the time to stop for a photo op and answer questions, that kind of thing. Um, you know, it's, it's so neat to get to see that type of openness and, you know, willing to, to stop and take the time. What advice do you have for someone considering a career in rotary aviation? So, you know, if, if you're looking for, uh, to do flight training and a career on the rotary side, I would say check out the flight schools, visit more than one if you can. Um, they're not always local. So if you have the ability to be mobile and go someplace else to do your flight training, say there's, you know, not a, a flight school that's close to you um, to be flexible like that. And to look at the type of aircraft they fly and see if it will prepare you well for your first job or two in helicopter aviation. There's a few different models that flight schools use to do flight training in. Uh, and a lot of first time or first jobs in the helicopter world might require hours in a Robinson. Uh, so look at the type of jobs that you're interested in and see if some of those hours are hours that you can gain through your flight training rather than trying to have to gain them once you've got all your ratings and are, you know, paying for more training on your own dime to be able to, to get the, the minimums required for those jobs. Now, would you please share with me a favorite memory or highlight from any point in your flying career so far? Oh gosh, there's a few. Uh, when I was working on my private pilot's license, I had a solo flight in the evening. Uh, in the, I was training in the St. Louis area and the airport that I was flying out of is on the, right on the Mississippi River, but over in Illinois. And there's an Air Force base that's close to there. Um, I was flying in the pattern doing a solo hour or however long the flight was. It was a towered airport and I had turned on the downwind and I could see this dark colored large plane that looked like it had four engines just kind of lumbering over downtown St. Louis, kind of heading, sort of heading out towards the Air Force Base, but, you know, it was flying in the area. And the, uh, the controller that was on that evening, he called me and he said, hey, do you see that plane that's over there? I said, yeah. And he said, that's a B-52. <laughs> so to, to share the airspace with 
you know, some, an iconic plane like that, it wasn't coming to our airport. It was going, I think it did a flyover for whatever reason at the air force base and then left the airspace. But, you know, just to see things like that from the air, um, there was another flight that, it, you know, it was just a typical training flight, but I, I did a lot of my training in the evenings because I worked full time through all of my training and the same flight, we got to see the sunset and a full moon rise, you know, within, a, and you know, like an hour of each other. So that was really neat. Um, trying to think of what else. And I'm always fascinated with, you know, the things that you can see from the air too. More than once I've been on a flight and kind of get to see a bald eagle from the air, you know, uh, almost eye to eye with them. So that's just kind of a, a, a neat experience to get to see them from, see from their perspective instead of, you know, looking up at them on the ground. Melissa, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed uh, our conversation, uh, talking about aviation and sharing my love of aviation and helicopters with you and the audience. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searle. If you would like to learn more about the show, the Holding Short podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us.